Hello and welcome to uh, Midlife Athlete Podcast. Um, I would say that uh, it's normally me and my co-host uh, Greg, but Greg seems to be stuck in uh, in the ether of the green room, so I'm flying solo again uh, today. Um, uh, and I'm really pleased today because we're tackling a subject that we have touched on um, very briefly with certain guests before and always really wanted to tackle as a, as a subject on its own. It's a massive, massive topic. We all do it. Uh, and that's sleep. And uh, really pleased to welcome two guests from overseas. So we've got some international visitors to the podcast today. Uh, one of them is uh, Dr. Jonathan Sherez, uh, who is a doctor in psychology and a director of the Athlete Sleeping Services at the Centre for Sleep and Human Performance. And he's joining from Calgary. And Jesse Cook, who is doing a PhD at the moment uh, in clinical psychology uh, with the University of Wisconsin. Uh, and you're at the is it the plant lab that is correct yes welcome guys thank you for joining um I, you're probably both on your early morning coffees whilst we're all moving to uh tea at this end of the uh, atlantic um thank you for coming on board i mean obviously i think the most obvious question that we want to ask is um what why do we sleep and do do all animals do it? Or is there any animals that, that actually don't sleep? Yeah, that's a that's a brilliant question, Jason. And, and uh, truthfully, it's a complicated one, right? The true function of sleep at this time isn't fully clarified. Um, but we do know that it's not only just an essential human behavior that is paramount to healthy psychological, cognitive, physical, insert any sort of aspect of functioning. So an essential human behavior, but we know that all animals to our knowledge have some form of sleep-like state. And I say sleep-like state because it varies across the animal kingdom. Um, it doesn't all look the same, but truthfully, it, it seems to have been preserved across evolution, which to me highlights its import. Um, because when you think about evolutionary theory, it seems so against utility for a species survival um, because you're not seeking a mate. You're not looking for food. And in fact, you're kind of vulnerable to predation. So it seems to go against a lot of principles that would be useful for progression of a species. And so when you just frame it in that light, the fact that it's a non-negotiable essential essential behavior, I think highlights its import. And there are vast utilities of sleep, whether it's clearing toxins from the brain or um, allowing for the regulation of human growth hormone to repair um, and kind of improve physical elements of the human body. Um, it's almost seemingly endless what sleep actually touches upon. But truthfully, just thinking about it from that evolutionary framework for me has always solidified like, okay, this must be extremely important. Uh, otherwise, I don't think it would exist for us. And I don't think it would have been preserved across kind of all of phylogeny on that sense. Uh, Jonathan, do you have anything you think you want to add on that? I think you describe sleep sleep in a brain, in a brain fashion uh, from its uh, evolutionary standpoint. It just speaks to its import, as you mentioned, and 
from a day-to-day perspective, uh, we all go through suboptimal night of sleep and you only need one suboptimal night of sleep to remember you how important this is. You know, in French, we have a very good ex- a expression for this. It's you get up on the left foot, just mean that you have a very poor night, you're unstable, and you'll be moody for the rest of your day just because you had one poor night. So this speaks to me to its importance and its fundamental role into the uh, energy stabilization, your mood stabilization. And in fact, what is truly sleep for? As Jesse mentioned, we don't clearly know it yet. But the way I frame it with patient and client, sleep is meant for you for preserving or giving you your next day energy. So it's not about eight hours sleep. It's do you have enough energy? Do you have optimal energy the following day to do your entire day? Errands, physical activity, work, so on and so forth. And if yes, you've achieved good sleep. Uh, yeah, that's that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And, and I think you're right. That there must be an evolutionary advantage to doing it. Otherwise, why would we do it? Um, and it's clear that all animals obviously need that energy expenditure day in, day out. So that, I, I really like that. That approach to it, but do we do we know uh, in, in, a, in a very simple level neurologically? I guess what happens during sleep that I guess may also answer the question of why we think it's so important to us. Yeah, there's there's definitely a multitude of changes that occur as we go from our wakefulness through a kind of a deeper rest to an actual sleep state. Uh, We can see that in just about every sort of aspect of physiology and biology, including the brain. And I don't want to get too lost into the underlying changes in neurotransmitters and synaptic function and all sorts of things like that. But basically, the way we've organized it at this point for humans and mammals in general is that there are two distinct umbrellas of sleep. There's non-rapid eye movement sleep and rapid eye movement sleep. And within that, within non-rapid eye movement sleep, we've identified three distinct stages. And we can differentiate between the three stages of non-rapid eye movement sleep and the one stage of rapid eye movement sleep, so four in total of sleep stages, through electrophysiological changes, uh, principally. Uh, We can also do it pretty well with heart rate, but that's a whole different story. Um, but largely we can see how the brain starts to slow down as we go into the deeper stages of non-rapid eye movement sleep. If I had your brain, Jason, hooked up to uh, what's known as an electroencephalogram, which I'll just say EEG, uh, one of my least favorite words in the field. I can see why. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely a mouthful. Um, we would see right now your brain in this wake state would have these really kind of low amplitude, high frequency waveforms, something in generally in the alpha or beta range. Um, but as we start to drift into the deeper stages of sleep, those waveforms will get larger in amplitude and start slowing down. And it's a proxy into what's going on at the neuronal level, where things start to really synchronize and to kind of go on and off states. And that's that deeper stage of sleep known as non-rapid eye movement three, which is otherwise known as slow wave sleep. Why? Because it's defined by these really big slow waves. 
And that's a lot of what my research is on as it relates to mood disorders, sleepiness, things like that. But the interesting thing too is when we start going to REM sleep, which is also considered a deeper stage of sleep, it actually kind of more mirrors wakefulness from an EEG perspective. It gets a little messier with higher frequency, faster waveforms in the brain. Um, So it's always kind of a mystery as far as which one's deeper, if you will, the N3 sleep or the REM sleep, which one's more important is kind of a nonsensical debate, but one that often happens in our field. But just broadly speaking, I like to say we have five stages of sleep. One we're doing right now, which is wakefulness. That occurs during sleep, usually at the beginning, sometime in the middle. And there's probably a little bit residual at the end. Uh, Some of it we're aware of and some of it we're not. And then there are the four stages of sleep, uh, three in the non-REM category and one in the REM category. And we can change, we can identify that through changes in the brain. We, we spoke to a, um, Greg and I spoke to a, uh, an immunologist, um, uh, and also, um, a psychologist who, who was, um, quite interested in terms of, he, t- he talked about sleep being quite important for sort of removing toxins. Um, and, um, I just wondered if you could maybe touch on that and, and, um, what does that involve? What, what, at what stage does that happen? Um, that, that, that would be really helpful to kind of build out on that a little bit more. I, most of that research and most of the hypothesis were, were, were speculative on the fact that this happens through deep stage of sleep. So this is why so many uh, individuals are paying attention to how much N3 uh, or slow wave sleep they're getting. So that's why these little things sometimes may be detrimental. So I have a lot of patients showing up, so I'm not getting enough deep sleep. So that's why I must be tired. And oh, that's why I got the flu last week and, and so on and so forth. The reality is we we still believe, we think this is when it occurs are we completely sure? Absolutely not. So as Jesse mentioned, there is five stages of sleep. This is not how I call them. I call them stage of alertness because when you are asleep, you're still alert. So right now we are fully alert. N1 is another state of alertness because if I do a little sound next to you, your brain will react to it. In N2, the same thing. We have our K-complex and spindle. And so to say that there is one specific stage that do uh, clean the toxin, I think that's a little bit arbitrary and reduction is for sleep and it speaks to its complexity. So to me, uh, how sleep will clear toxin, it's through its continuity. If you sleep two segments of four hours throughout the day and then you claim that you've slept eight hours uh, compared to an individual that may sleep a straight eight hour and we assume they are both of high quality, my assumption would be that the one who slept the straight eight hour will have a better uh, clearance of toxin. But again, that's highly speculative. Mm. What do you think, Jesse? Yeah, just to, to piggyback on that. And it's actually um, quite near and dear to some of the research I'm doing right now. Um, the kind of This really relates in many ways to the neurodegenerative conditions that are becoming a major burden in a public health crisis most um principally Alzheimer's disease. And Alzheimer's disease is often uh, attributed to 
kind of this protein buildup, these amyloid plaques in the brain. And one theory of how sleep contributes to that is the fact that during wakefulness, amyloid accumulates. So those with shorter sleep duration would be exposed to longer periods of wakefulness, thus having the accumulation of amyloid. But that doesn't necessarily explain why you also have a high risk for Alzheimer's disease and dementias, even if you're sleeping a long sleeper, 10 plus hours, because they have reduced wakefulness. So there has to be more to this. And sure, it could be elements of their lifestyle that contribute to that, you know, maybe differential movement habits, diet, things like that, stress that, you know, indirectly affect these relationships. But I think a more reasonable theory connects what we're talking about here. And that's how the glymphatic system has been shown to be regulated by sleep. And the glymphatic system is a unique component of our physiology that clears these toxins from the brain. And as Jonathan said, it's often attributed right now that the deeper stages, N3 sleep, slow wave sleep, which we've kind of arbitrarily created, these defined categories, if you will, regulates the glymphatic system. So as Jonathan said, it's probably something that's going on in that deeper stage. But that's an artificial construct, and there's more nuance below that. And it's probably more about this, you know, a better proxy is the continuity of your sleep. If you're sleeping continuously, you're probably able to enter those deeper stages, whatever those are in the real world kind of valid constructs. And that's regulating the lymphatic system that's allowing the clearance of the brain. And persons often who are sleeping longer periods may have an organic disorder like idiopathic hypersomnia where they may have reductions in these deeper stages of sleep and thus potentially some dysfunction in the glymphatic system. And that may explain why they're also susceptible to higher risk for dementias and Alzheimer's disease because they're not able to clear these plaques. So it's a complicated story that's starting to get you know, teased apart more and more. Um, but it's clear that some element of sleep basically tells the glymphatic system, do your job. And the lymphatic system's like, oh, okay, and let me go clear these toxins from the brain. You know, that's a simplified view, but I think that kind of elegantly points out what's going on and, and how it's um, pruning those toxins. And uh, I just want to add another piece to this. There's a theory called the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis. And that actually emerged out of the University of Wisconsin from uh, these remarkable, uh, I think, Italian researchers, Giulio Tononi and Chiara Sorelli. And the notion is that as we go through our day, our brain is always, quote unquote, learning. It's always taking in new information, right? And so that's called synaptic potentiation. Basically, the synapses are getting full throughout our day. Well, we don't have unlimited resources. So we have to find a way to remove some of the things that occur during our day. And that is the kind of function of sleep in some ways, too, is to go into the brain and to basically get your resources back, right? To depotentiate these synapses, to be able to make new memories and things like that the next day. And that's why kind of repetitive learning before sleep, if you go over a list of words multiple times, you're basically telling the brain, don't remove that, strengthen that connection during sleep. And so... I know I kind of steered us away from toxins per se, 
But there's a lot of aspects of sleep that are about kind of cleaning up the brain. And I thought that was a good spot for that kind of notion. Yeah, no, it is. It is. And uh, Greg may not be here, but he's actually messaging me far from the green room on WhatsApp, um, even though he can't hear the conversation. But he, he makes a good point uh, that, it, that he wanted to ask you, and that was about sleep deprivation. Um, and I actually, whilst we're on the kind of general topic of sleep, I, I, I read I can't remember where it, where I read it, but there was some Russian, uh, I think it was a, a lady who uh, back in, I guess it was the late 1800s, early 1900s, and she was doing some experiments on dogs. There's no way this would ever be allowed now. But she had a group of dogs that she um, just didn't feed and a group of dogs that she managed to keep awake somehow. So they were subject to sleep deprivation and it was the the ones that were sleep deprived who who basically went downhill, you know, the quickest. So so on Greg's question, which is really, uh, I think it's a mirror mirror of this why we think sleep is important. What happens to us with with sleep deprivation? I with sleep deprivation. So one of the the foundational uh, story on this it was done by Henri Pierron in the early 19th, so in France. So uh, what he did was quite similar to that story. So he was walking his dog throughout the nights in the street of Paris to sleep deprive him. Henri Pierron was sleeping during the day a little bit, but he was sleep depriving his dog. And what he was doing was uh, retrieving uh, cerebrospinal fluids from his dog brain. And this is uh, how they went and uh, started to uh, see the adenosine accumulation in the brain. So to the point of Jesse's earlier, the longer you are awake, the more toxin you may accumulate throughout the day. And on the other end, when you sleep, you do clean these toxins up. So that's what sleep deprivation does to you. The longer you are awake, the more likely you are to be sleepy because of this accumulation of toxin. So that's what it does. And on that point, so there is a difference to make between sleep restriction and sleep deprivation. So sleep deprivation, if I deprive you from sleep, it means that I completely deprive you from sleep for a, for a straight 24 hour. Sleep restriction on the other end is you still sleep throughout the day or throughout, the, uh, throughout a period of the 24 hour, let's say six or less hour. So these two, this, this, this distinction is important to me. A lot, uh, too many people use sleep deprivation. I'm sleep deprived. Well, are you really sleep deprived? You're sleep restricted chronically. Yes, you are sleep restricted, but not sleep deprived. Nevertheless, these two uh, factors or these two uh, event or possibility will increase the accumulation of toxin in your brain. So that's what it does to your brain. And it makes it just sluggish, slower to react, more prone to injury, more prone to uh, react to uh, futile stimuli in your environment. And that's why sleep is important. I mean, to uh, temper your mood, readjust everything, and do consolidate your memory for a student, for example. Mm. So we've kind of talked about this sort of general elements of sleep, and I, and I know it's like a fascinating topic. And we could, you, you guys, I'm sure, could spend hours and hours and hours doing it. Um, is there any relationship between the sleep and an aging? Um, so obviously I'm now moving, <laughs> moving into the brackets of us midlife athletes. You got, you gentlemen are still a bit younger. Um, but, but is, do, do we, do we know whether anything happens, um, 
with sleep with aging. I kind of I'm trying to look to see whether or not there's any relationship, like we have, we know with muscle mass, for example, it, it declines, VO2 declines. There's generally I don't think there's anything that actually goes up, but there's there's a lot that goes down. Um, does sleep act in that way? Definitely. Um, and just to close the door on the sleep deprivation discussion first, um, the key word Jonathan pointed out to is chronic. Uh, I actually think the story is more complicated in that there may be some benefit to acute or short-term sleep deprivation or sleep restriction. Uh, and this is a really understudied area, but I'm sure that the militaries or you know endurance athletes may be interested in this. But it's thought that it may actually produce a hormetic effect, meaning kind of this acute stressor leads to an adaptive response by the body. And just kind of from an evolutionary perspective, I just don't think we were as routine with our sleep. So it's probably more likely that we had some really good sleep periods and then some, you know, uh, sleepless periods, right? That seems to be more likely of a scenario. And to close the door, I just want to say there seems to be some sort of antidepressant effect of uh, acute sleep restriction in severe depression. Um, and we're hypothesizing too that we may actually have a rebound of vigilance in persons that have excessive daytime sleepiness that's unexplainable through a similar mechanism. The biology is not necessarily understood right now, um, but it may actually have utility at times. Um, so it's not always bad, but I just want to, I don't want to emphasize that theme. I do want to emphasize Jonathan's theme that acquire sufficient sleep of sufficient duration and quality as much as you can. Um, yeah. So I, I kind of steered us away there. Jason, I forgot the question. Uh, I apologize. I I'm assuming it's oh, sleep across the yeah, lifespan. Well, yes. it, it, the downward trend, I imagine. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's certainly uh, good and bad, I think. Right. So um, if you look at the national sleep foundations recommendations here in America for sleep, it's clear that sleep changes across the lifespan for a neonate or a newborn. Their sleep need is upwards of, you know, 16 to 18 hours across a 24 hour period. And that also shifts as we start to go through childhood and adolescence, where it starts to drop down to maybe 11 to 13 hours, 9 to 11, when you start to reach um, kind of adolescence. And then for kind of young adults to middle age, that often recommendation becomes about seven to nine hours of total sleep time across a 24-hour period. And the keyword is sleep time, not time in bed attempting to sleep on that one. And that even further is refined once you get into older adulthood, so 65 plus, where it's recommended to seven to eight hours of sleep. And the key here is that our ability to sleep changes too. Clearly, the amount of sleep we need changes, but our ability to sleep also changes, where it is actually expected to have more awakenings during the night as you get older. So for kind of younger to middle-aged adults, it's generally expected to have somewhere between zero to two awakenings during a night. And I, if I leave with anything here, it's that don't be fearful of an awakening. It does not mean you have poor sleep. Um, it's can we return to sleep in a timely fashion and how many awakenings are we having, right? But as we start to age even further, that number expands and the recommendation is actually, or kind of normal limits is like one to three awakenings a night. 
So our ability to accumulate the amount of sleep that we should expect changes. And clearly our ability to sleep also changes. And truthfully, I'm not fully certain why. Maybe Jonathan has a better answer on this. Uh, But there are a lot of great researchers that are kind of teasing apart the physiological changes. Um, My belief is it probably has something to do, going back to this evolution thing, that we're living a lot longer than we used to. Uh, And so the body's just not necessarily prepared for the duration of life that we now have. Uh, But I'll pass it to Jonathan because he's a little bit older than me and certainly a a lot wiser. (laughs) Uh, Of course, you have the, uh, thank you, Jesse, for pointing that out. Uh, So you have the, uh, the ontogeny of sleep. So as Jesse pointed out, neonatal and newborn, uh, you will have a very distinct period of sleep, which is called uh, alternate cycle. Uh, So it's it's linked to the formation of your REM sleep and non-REM sleep. So you will have these bursts of activity in your brain uh, to create that two section of sleep, which is the REM and non-REM, as Jesse refers earlier. As you uh, get older, so toddler, childhood and teenager, uh, your need for sleep definitely changes. And we believe it's because of the evolution uh, of your brain, of course. Uh, Not only the quantity of your sleep needs changes, but the timing of your sleep also changes. And that is one of uh, my first question I always ask my patient. The famous question, when? Most people forget to ask that question. We know how to sleep. We know where to sleep. We approximately what sleep is, but we never ask when. And the example I give them is, let's take a very uh, traditional day. At 7 a.m., you have a breakfast. At noon, you have your lunch. And at 6 p.m., you have your dinner. I will not touch how you eat or what you eat or where you eat. I'll just touch when. I'll delay everything by two hours. I'll upset you or piss you off, essentially. That's what I'll do. Well, sleep is the same. And why I'm doing this long detour is for teenagers. Lots of teenagers have difficulties initiating sleep before midnight. And they also have a lot of difficulties initiating or emerging out of sleep before 8 o'clock in the morning. And because of our social pressure of the early birds gets the worm, they are categorized as lazy. They're not lazy. They're just misaligned because we've forgotten how to ask the question when. We have that social pressure of the earlier you get, the more time you have to work or to learn, which is also a complete fallacy because those who wake up at five, they will retire to bed earlier than these teenagers will do. So that's the section on teenager. And that's why also starting school later is super important. And then as you move on, Uh, on life, depending on your uh, work requirement, that question when becomes also fundamental. Can you actually wake up after seven? So we can say uh, whatever, we can throw whatever theory we want to to athletes, to uh, the general population, any type of worker. But if they have, if they are a shift worker, if you're hammering the nail of you need to sleep at that time every single day, are you going to lose them? And midlife athletes are no different. They have a full-time job and often will take marathon because that's one of our point of interest. Where do you accumulate all that mileage? You need to run between 60 and 100 kilometers 
per week. So now the question re, uh, goes back to scheduling. When? You know how to run. You know what to do. You know all of these questions, but the question when is always forgotten. So sleep is no different than that. And as you get older and older, this is the same question. We we did a lot of work on how long do we need. Uh, so that 11 to 13, uh, that's 7 to 8. But when do we actually need it is massively important for circadian health. And I'll stop on that and pass the ball now to Jesse for circadian health. But do not, do not mention it. And I want to make that point very clear. Always, teenagers are not lazy because they want to wake up later. Or they're not being uh, on a contradiction or confrontational with you because they don't want to be in bed by 10. It's just that biologically speaking, they cannot achieve it. Well, you've you've certainly well, satisfied my teenage son, who uh, <laughs> aptly fits that description, uh, Jonathan. And I will say, they're not mutually exclusive. They can still be lazy and still have a biological <laughs> shift that leads us to perceive that they're more lazy than they are. Because uh, we have an 11-year-old in the home, and I can tell you I'm seeing that shift right now. It's readily apparent. Some of it is kind of what's called... Um, external pressures, the social demands, those types of things that come online. But there truly is these kind of are these internal intrinsic changes, largely in kind of hormonal regulation and timing that shift these individuals later. And kind of as we kind of go through life, we have multiple shifts. And as we go into kind of adulthood again, and kind of the mid stage of life and older, we start getting more and more, generally speaking, phase advanced. So we're going delayed kind of through adolescence and then we start to kind of shift back more towards normal and then we start to go more advanced as we get older. It's not always the case, but that's kind of the general uh, trend that we see in a circadian rhythm. And we could spend, again, m countless episodes on the circadian rhythm alone, but you can't talk sleep without the circadian rhythm. Um, and so that's where Jonathan and I are, are really interested these days in research is understanding circadian health of athletes. So just as a primer, the circadian rhythm is the, the term circadian is derived from two Latin words, circa, around, dia's day. So it's about a day. Generally speaking, it's 24.18 hours. And it basically regulates all biology, turning on, turning off, informing when certain hormones are produced and not. And we've developed this rhythm through our interaction primarily with the sun and darkness, light and darkness. It's helped entrain how we navigate our environment. The good news, though, then, is we can also adjust our rhythms because of that, using light principally. But what we're starting to see a little bit, as Jonathan pointed out, is kind of this complexity of you get older you have all these responsibilities in life. You may be shifting more towards a morningness, actual chronotype. That's the biological characterization of your circadian rhythm. But you also may have a preference, a psychological desire to have a later um, kind of lifestyle because you want to be social in the evenings or whatever, or you want to train in the evenings. because That's the only time you want. And now you have a mismatch between biology and psychology which can often present as sleep problems. So that's why we always discuss that you can't talk sleep health without kind of 
understanding the circadian health and kind of the timing of things as Jonathan unpacked there. Yeah, that was a really good lead in. It's almost as if you could read my notes because I was just about to sort of go into that circadian rhythm. And you you mentioned about your interest with athletes and marathon and sleep. So what, what, what are you finding? I mean, you've talked about that clash between the sort of biological and the psychological, but what else are you finding in, in, in that research? Um, that, and I guess research with, with sports people in general, but you know, not just the sort of midlife athletes uh, amongst us. Uh, what we find, what I find personally here on the clinical side is athletes are very poor at scheduling. Uh, they they don't understand that we have 24 hour which are repetitive every day and they're try <laughs> and they're not so what i do with them is i give them 24 blocks each block represents an hour and then we color code them and they realize that 24 hour is longer than they think when it is properly assessed so with that so I, I tell them the same thing. So I have middle a middle age uh, athlete that do train for marathon, and the culture of marathon is morning. I need to put my mileage in the morning. So I have often athletes that will wake up around four thirty five to actually go for a run. Do you think running at four thirty five in the morning is the same as four thirty five in the evening? That's always my question to them. And yes, no, I don't know. I'm not sure. And it just tried to, you know, circle the wagon and circle the pot when I asked that question. Because they deeply inside them know it's not the same. And then I go back with food. Would you eat the same thing at 3 p.m. or 3 a.m.? No. So why would you do physical activity at 4.30 in the morning when you should really be sleeping? And then this is what we are always juggling with them. It's the, the schedule. And with that, it depends also on the type of sport. So right now I'm dealing with a lot of uh, skeleton athletes. So this sliding sport, uh, it's more of a evening type of training. No problem with them whatsoever. They always train before uh, between 5 and 8 p.m. Uh, they have a good routine to actually wind down and they're in bed by 10, 30, 11 all the time. Whereas these other sports of super morning culture, triathlon, swimming, uh, marathon runner, it's always a fight of, well, I need to be up at 4.30. Therefore, I need to be in bed at 8.30. Magic, magic, that's eight hours sleep. Do you really need eight hours sleep? And if so, do you need it in that time frame? So that's why the duration, the circadian health, all of this is intertwined so deeply that you need to assess them uh, on their own and then make their interrelationship with them. But Jonathan, you've said a really, I mean, that's a really quite an interesting thing there which i hadn't really thought about before so so what you're saying is that there's that there's there's a pressure from a particular sport as you say marathon running for example to train at that particular time which then influences when people train but that may not be the right thing to do for their own circadian rhythm and so there's a clash there um so really should they be thinking about their own circadian rhythm and then put in the training slot in? Should, should it be that way round? Uh, yes, but the other thing is we try to merge theory with reality. So here in Canada, we get winters. So if you're a triathlete, you cannot swim in the lake year round. So you need to be in a swimming pool. 
So the accessibility to swimming pool is not always easy to train. So now the negotiation becomes on, here's the theory. We think you are a night owl, let's say, and you have three early morning training. Which one, I'm asking one, can we negotiate? So the idea is always to change as little as possible to have the best outcome. Trying to change everything, you will break or you will transition in a, two, in a new year's resolution that will last two weeks. You'll lose. So it's always in the mind frame of, here's a theory, how can we merge that into reality? So we try always to align the type of sleeper you are with your training schedule to the best of your reality sitting. When are uh, the uh, plateau accessible? So I'm talking about uh, diving board. I'm talking about ice rink. I'm talking about basketball court. I'm talking about uh, pool. Because when you go on running on the other end, there's no excuse. There's absolutely, but absolutely no excuse if you're a marathoner. You can run anywhere. I'll let Jesse take the ball from there and see if he has a different perspective on that. You know, I, I largely agree. And I think a salient example is me. Like left up to my own devices, I would prefer to run in the early afternoon around 3 or 4 p.m. Uh, Jonathan, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe um, Forbes Robertson uh, identified that our peak biological performance time is in that kind of early to late afternoon, somewhere around 4 to 5 p.m. typically, or 16 to 1700. But that just doesn't fit with my lifestyle, right? At that time, I'm usually closing down a workday, trying to come home and be a parent and interact with my partner and things like that. Those are priorities. So I choose to run in the early morning, despite the fact that it's not the best for my biology at that time. And I may actually have worse performance outcomes at that time, be more susceptible to injury, things like that. But that's a choice at this point. The theory tells me to do differently. Yet at the same time, it is complex because we also know that most marathon races aren't in the evening. So you have to understand that you want your training time in many ways to mirror your performance time, the environment you're going to be in. And although this is unpublished work right now that Jonathan and I are doing, we're, we're looking at some of this London Marathon data. And we won't go too much into the weeds because, again, it's unpublished. We haven't gone through the peer review process. But there does seem to be a distinct advantage for persons who identify as being a morningness person. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about that these races start at 9 a.m. typically or, or somewhere around there. And so the question becomes then, okay, well, are we going to change the competition so that you can run whenever you want to? You know, maybe Jonathan over here, whose eveningness is like, I'm going to start my race at 7 p.m. And Jesse, you can start yours whenever you want, but this is when I'm doing it. No, that's not how it works. And that translates across many issues like academia right now, where kids may be taking tests at the wrong time and their performance is reflecting uh, maybe less vigilance and uh, ability that's not actually their academic ability. That's similar in kind of race performance right now too, in many ways. Um, so what then happens is, okay, so Jonathan can't change the fact that he likes more eveningness, right? But what he could do in preparation for a race that's in the morning is start to maybe gently shift his rhythm and also gently shift his uh, kind of training schedule to better align 
with the race timing. And we can do that through modalities like light. We can do that through movement, meal timing, things like that, where we can actually shift our rhythm, our circadian rhythm. And that may be one way that we kind of bridge theory with reality is maybe not at all times of the year is Jonathan adopting an earlier training schedule, but leading into a race where that's when it's going to occur. That's probably a good idea for Jonathan to start thinking about that and how it's going to affect his performance. Two questions that came out of that. Um, One was, how do you know what your Caucasian rhythm is? How do you know if you're a morning or an evening person? Are there any telltale signs? And I'm guessing when you're saying about shifting that, that takes time, right? I, I, I can't believe for one moment you're going to tell me that you can just you know, click your fingers and change it, that that's probably a process as opposed to an immediate step. I'll answer the first one and then pass it to Jonathan for kind of the initial talk on kind of light therapy and the duration of it and um, in the athlete context. Because I only really do that at this stage in more of the clinical context when I'm trying to change somebody's rhythm. Um, And that takes a lot of time and effort and things like that. But that's more of a a long-term stable process rather than maybe an acute shift for performance. Um, Basically, God, I do these tirades that just lead me into the blank on you know, what I actually want to say. What was the first question, Jason? How do you know what your Caucasian rhythm is? Perfect. That's why. Because I have 6,000 things that flood my brain when this question comes up. So first, again, I want to circle back that there's often a difference. There's a complexity of language here. People will use the term chronotype, which is one's biological rhythm and circadian preference interchangeably. And they're often not. There's a great researcher, Till Roenberg, who adamantly defends that circadian preference measured from um, the Munich uh, questionnaire maps linearly onto chronotype. And I just wholeheartedly disagree. Okay. So chronotype is the biological representation of your circadian rhythm. And the gold standard for measuring that is something called dim light melatonin onset. So we bring people into a laboratory setting. We have a certain standardized amount of light lux that they can get exposed to. And then we take samples, saliva typically, and can assay the melatonin production in the evening hours. And we can get a good sense of somebody's biological chronotype based on their melatonin production because melatonin is one of the key hormones being regulated by our circadian rhythm. But obviously that's clunky and cumbersome and requires specialized equipment. So the answer is it's complicated from a kind of recreational perspective, right? I will say there are some commercial companies now that are purporting the ability, I want to emphasize the word purporting, uh, the ability to provide direct feedback to the general population uh, on their actual biological chronotype. Um, And I actually spoke with one of these companies recently, and I actually believe in what they're doing in the validation of the process and things like that. But that would be kind of the empirical way to know what your biology is. But most people don't have that. So my answer on that front is to, I guess, listen to your biology, to, you know, the word is interoception, to get better in tune with how you're feeling at different times of the day. And that will shed good insight into what your biology is. It's not probably one-to-one, but the more you spend thinking and kind of feeling and understanding where you, when you feel you're most alert, you're most refreshed, things like that, 
will shed insight into whether you're kind of a traditional, you know, rhythm where bedtime's around 10 p.m. and rise time's around 6 a.m., whether you're a little more advanced, hand up here, where my bedtime's typically around 9 p.m. and my rise time's typically around 5 a.m., or you're a little more delayed, where your bedtime's more around midnight or 1 a.m. and your rise time's more around 8, 9, or 10 a.m. And so I think that's where you start to uh, understand your actual biology without doing any sort of complicated measurement. Uh, but it's not perfect. And I, I do think there's going to be more advancements in the coming years where this type of measurement is more accessible to the everyday user. And I completely agree with you, Jesse. It's it's not an alignment one-on-one. Uh, that's that's a good side and a bad side of being a researcher and a clinician at the same time. We are often trying to look to the perfect answer. I do believe they, they are important to find. So what is the true answer from a, a empirical uh, standpoint? Uh, but when you work with athletes, there is, in my opinion, only one question that matters. Do you feel refreshed in the morning? And they will tell you. And when we when I do the education part on that with them is, I don't really care about you sleep right now. I want to develop awareness with you. When do you feel sleepy? Can you tell the difference between sleepiness and tiredness? And can you tell me when you are refreshed in the morning and when you're not? And then with that, we funnel the approach of, look, whenever you are awake between five and six, this is no go for you. Or six and seven, seven and eight, and so on and so forth. Then you take that night owl. So now he is very aware that his optimal bedtime 12 to 1, optimal wake time, 8 to 9. But I'm working at 7 a.m. in the morning, right? Then we'll shift. All good that you're a night owl. I won't dispute that. I won't die fighting on that ill. But realistically speaking, we can't. So now we need to shift. And we have these very fancy things here to shift you. So to Jesse's point, the dim light melatonin onset is massively important. We don't go that deep in the weed with the uh, the patient or the client. Uh, we just explain in broadly blue light. So everyone knows that blue light is the uh, nemesis of sleep. That you should put your screen away two hours before bed. Again, whenever I I say that two hours before bed, I can see their face changing. Immediately. <laughs> how can I how can I put my device away two hours before bed? I'm going to bed at nine thirty. There's no one putting my device away at seven thirty. Yes, all done. It's twenty twenty two. Screen are not going anywhere. Let's be honest on this. If you make a change that's going to increase the burden of your uh, reality sitting or your quality of life, you're not winning again. So we have to develop awareness. When are you sleepy? When are you tired? Don't go in bed tired. Tired is your body. Sleepy is your head. Your head sleeps. Your body doesn't. And then after that, when do you wake up refresh? Same with food. You know when to stop to eat. You're full. You don't calculate your calories. I don't want you calculating your minutes of sleep. I want you to be aware of your state. This is the first step. And after that, well, I need, now we look at the schedule. I need to be up at six because this is the only time I could train then we will shift you with a play of light and darkness. Melatonin is the hormone of darkness, not the hormone of sleep. Right now, I'm surrounded by light. I am suppressing melatonin because of the blue light. Blue light is what will uh, activate your pineal gland, uh, suppress your pineal gland, and so on and so forth. 
this will block the blue light or filter it, should I say. And I don't know if you hear this. This is not fancy. This is 40-ish dollar. Do not spend an atrocious number of money on this. Please, you'll get ripped off. It's only to block blue light. And the way you can uh, test them to see if they work, if you still see blue, it doesn't work. Ah, so what you're showing up what, for listeners, Jonathan's got a pair of orange spectacles, plastic spectacles, and he was just showing a blue card behind it and you couldn't see it. The problem with these is sometimes you have these companies that will uh, sell you these reading glasses that are clear lens. And my only question to my uh, patient is, do you see the color blue? Yes, you do not block blue. <laughs> so by blocking blue light, by blocking blue light, you will help your pineal gland to uh, distinguish between daytime for wakefulness and nighttime for melatonin production. So melatonin is a time shifter. So that's why we play with blue light and with a good strategy timing of increasing the uh, decreasing the blue light in the evening and increasing bright light in the morning, which is massively important. One does not go without the other one. If you wear blue light, uh, blue blocking glasses in the evening, but you do not bright, you do not engage in bright light therapy in the morning, you're wasting your time. So wakefulness is linked with bright light, and sleepiness is linked with darkness. And this is how you change and shift slowly or advance whatever you wherever you want to go. And this is why the strategy and the timing. I'm always going back to my when. When should you be exposed to bright light? When should you not? When should you be exposed to darkness? When should you not? And so on and so forth. Of course, you cannot shift someone by an hour within a week. It is a long-standing process, and the patient or the athlete needs to understand this. It's a Mickey Mouse step approach, I call. Little step by little step that you consolidate. And, you don't make it more complicated than that. Yeah, and how does... So I guess you, you've got your circadian rhythm that we've talked about in terms of, of, of a day, but also, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, we've got these you know, uh, light changes, you know, it, it's, uh, is there, is there also a rhythm around, around those? Definitely. And we're, we're getting better at understanding this. Uh, it's not fully clarified and I, I forget the paper, but you, they kind of dug deep over like hundreds of years of available data in some ways to kind of parse through uh, changing in sleep duration and timing across a calendar year. And it's certainly the case that our bedtimes are often slightly more delayed and our rise times are actually a little bit earlier in the summer months or when we have more light. And that makes sense, right? So our actual amount of sleep goes down, kind of winnows as we get into kind of the light periods of, or the more light periods of the season or calendar year. And then the kind of longer dark periods of the winters in Calgary and the winters in, in Madison, Wisconsin, right? Um, but the good and the bad is that we don't necessarily live in that evolutionary world anymore, right? And so listeners can't see, but I've got a kind of vibrant glow on my face right now. And that's because I have my circadian light box on because, um, Unfortunately, unfortunately, it's a thunderstormy day here in Madison, Wisconsin, so it's really gray out. And I still want to get that light to kind of activate my biology and continue to entrain my biology. 
because I can't control the actual weather or outdoor light. That's just not something I can control. But nowadays, we do have techniques that we can modify to mimic. It won't be the same as getting the natural bright sunlight as you go outside, but it'll be sufficient. And so that's kind of where we're at right now of how to navigate the various changes that we're susceptible to in these climates. Um, you mentioned the midlife athlete um, and, and, and alluded, and I think we all recognize this, that unlike professional athletes who can be a little bit more structured, although by the sounds of it, Jonathan, um, they probably need help with that. The, the midlife athlete is trying to cram absolutely everything in. Um, and you get these sort of almost um, vitriolic moments where, you know, I only need five hours sleep. I only need four hours sleep. Um, I just wondered if, if you can cast some kind of light, even if it's just, you know, a soapbox point where it's, you know, actually that's just, it's, it's, it's nonsense. You, <laughs> you come back to that thing of when and, 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 and how much you need. It is nonsense, uh, but this this thing has been coined by the uh, I don't know if it's the North American society, but the less you sleep, the stronger you are, the better you are, and that alpha male almost vision of I only need four or five hours sleep, see how good I am, and see how little I need to actually be that productive. It always goes back to productivity, so I can do my day of work take care of the family. And on top of that, I'm running 100K a, a, a week. See how good I am. Well, that doesn't that doesn't tell the entire story. I mean, why do you take only five hours to actually recover? And unfortunately or fortunately, depending on where you stand, the detrimental impact of lack of sleep are not instant. I, I know that prior I said that you only need one poor night to actually uh, recognize the importance of sleep. You can sleep five, six hours and still get through life. I won't debate that. What I will say, though, is you may not have the optimal outcome. I can go and sleep five, six hours and still show up to work every single day. However, I may miss a little bit more day of work due to fatigue, illness, flu, whatever it may be. Same will go for the athletes. If you are on minimal sleep, even though you're running all you want, the mileage you're gathering will not be of the same quality. So for a training that's supposed to be 70, 75% of your uh, energy, because you're underslept, this will be felt at 80, 85% by your body. And that is how you get an overtrained athlete without him knowing it. Well, I'm following protocol. I'm following my microcycle and mesocycle to the dot. Yeah, but you're underslept. So what did you expect? So the, the, the burden is not on the coach. It's not a poor coach or a poor strategy. It's a stubborn athlete because of that mentality of I only need five, six hours sleep. This is good enough. What that person does not recognize is if we were to take him and put him on an island with the same requirement of work, family and uh, training, but we will prioritize sleep, everything will go upward. Productivity will be upward. Uh, training session will be upward. Mood, social relationship. But it's just that they want to power through life because this has been made the standard goal, golden standard. And there is a little bit of fault on a lot of us, which is 
the early birds get the worm and the best hours of sleep are before midnight. And you have all these myths going around. And we love our military here. That's and what do they do? They're sleep deprived and they're probably one of the most efficient human beings on, the, on the, the surface of the planet. So we look up for them. So if they can do it with no sleep for 24, 36 hours, why do I need more than six? And there's that this constant battle of long-term outcome versus short-term outcome. And this is where the balance will come in. It's not about lecturing the individual. It's what do you truly want? If you're okay with that, then off you go. Here's again my theory. Here's what we know. Now, what do you want? You take whatever you want. And you keep it. But if you injure yourself from a very avoidable injury, don't come back complaining, though. Because I will tell you, I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just to piggyback on that, I mean, I'll, I'll throw myself under the bus here. I've been a sleep researcher for 11 years or so now. And I started grad school in 2017. And that transition was, was rough. I mean, being clinical psychology, PhD programs are real tough. And that was also my transition into endurance sports. I had previously been a golfer and a baseball player throughout high school and uh, a lot of basketball and things like that. But that was when I started to really get into endurance sports. So I tried to get all of my training demands in, tried to check all the boxes for the program, all the research, all those types of things. As Jonathan astutely said earlier, there's only 24 hours in the day, right? And I started to make the cardinal mistake of sacrificing sleep. And I went from prioritizing a sleep opportunity window of eight hours a night to really getting about five, at best six of hours of actual sleep most nights. And my body started to break down. I started to accumulate so many more injuries than I had before, whether it's just achy knees, Achilles pain, Achilles pain, whatever it may be, all those things started to manifest. My mental health started to degrade, right? irritability, motivation, those types of things started to present or low motivation started to present, which naturally interfere with my training and, and things like that. Fast forward nowadays, life gets a little bit easier on the back end of your uh, graduate training programs when you're not doing all these classes and stuff like that. Um, you know, I looked myself in the mirror about middle year of, of graduate school and felt like I was an imposter and being fraudulent and hypocritical and all sorts of things. And so I set the boundaries and made it a non-negotiable. I run hundreds of miles a week or a hundred plus miles a week now, and my body handles it smoothly, mostly, unless I'm an idiot carrying like 40 pound rucksacks, which I do sometimes when, when running and things like that. Jonathan, yeah, I understand that's warranted. Uh, but basically your body can handle so much more, can grow more, can respond so much more favorably when you're prioritizing sleep health. And that's just not sleep of sufficient duration, but also quality as well. When those ducks are in a line, you almost become superhuman. And that is the message there. And it really is a challenge at times to motivate individuals to prioritize sleep health because they're like, well, I got work to do. So I'm on my laptop till 11 and I definitely can't have my wind down routine because what's going on then? It's like, that's your choice. As Jonathan pointed out, I'm here to help you understand how important this is. And if you can avoid a major injury that has a setback for three to four weeks, where you're not able to train, isn't that so much better because you prioritize another hour of sleep each night than to get up and train through pain and risk those injuries and all sorts of things like that. So yeah, you're not just doing yourself the service for tomorrow, but you're prioritizing the future. It's a gift to your future self. 
Oh, I, li- I like that expression. Um, Jonathan, you alluded to sleep trackers. It's like, and we're all seem to be fascinated with data at the moment. And I don't, I don't want to kind of go into brands or anything like that. But are they, are they all that they're cracked up to be, or you know, do they cause perhaps more problems than they're trying to solve? Uh, well, depending on on what type of sleeper you are, I think they are excessively good for a good sleeper. If you're a good sleeper, sleep tracker will be good because you're not laying in bed trying to sleep. Here you go in bed, you will initiate sleep within that 20 minutes, you will have your zero to two awakening uh, for less than 20 minutes and you will wake up and you're good to go. So the tracker to me is just the same way as the scale in your bathroom is to keep you accountable. You know what you need, you know what you're getting and you're getting it. And it's just a fun thing to have. Look, I'm having data and you're trying to optimize. When these devices are used in that way, I'm all for it. Are they accurate though, in terms of their, because they try to break down those sort of zones of sleep that you talked about. Can I, can I hop in here, yeah, Jonathan? Go. I'll let you see for this one. So you've opened up a can of worms, Jason. This is kind of my uh, side research program that I've done. And I really started kind of evaluating the capabilities of commercially available sleep trackers um, right at the start of graduate school or so. And my mentor threw something on my desk. It was a Fitbit. He was like, do you know what this is? I was like, yeah, I think so. I think it's one of those activity trackers. He's like, does it measure sleep? And I was like, I don't know, maybe. And so we did like our first like evaluation study of the Fitbit uh, Flex at that time, um, which was a really at this point outdated model. And it was really poor at actually like estimating sleep duration, estimating when you fell asleep, wake during the night. Uh, certainly the arbitrary outputs of light and deep sleep that they give you are, are were nonsensical then. They evolved over time. At that point, it was just uh, using movement to kind of capture sleep and wake, more or less, which is not far off from what we do in the clinical setting with these devices called actigraphs. But the evolution occurred when they started adding a heart rate sensor uh, and allowed for better characterization of sleep. So again, these light, deep, and REM stages that you often see on these outputs. But truthfully, Jason, the first models of those were crap. And the first one I remember was the Jawbone Up 3. And um, we evaluated that one against the gold standard polysomnography. And it's agreement when it came to like light sleep, deep sleep with those actual stages of N2 and N1 and N3, if you will, was about 30 to 40% accuracy. Yet those devices were kind of emerged on the scene in kind of around 2015 or so. And a lot of evolution has come on for wearables and nearables that can Mm. detect your sleep from ambient monitoring, right? And nowadays, Jason, most modern devices, most modern multi-sensory devices, meaning they're pairing heart rate with um, activity, movement, accelerometry at a minimum. Now they're doing more now with like oxygen detection and things like that. But at a minimum, just heart rate and activity levels, they're really good at estimating sleep duration more times than not. And they're much better. Didn't say really good. They're much better at characterizing our sleep where at this point, whether it's, you know, whatever insert commercially available name product, I would say about 60 to 70% accuracy when trying to capture REM sleep or the deeper stages of sleep. They still really struggle 
with estimating one's latency or how long it takes them to fall asleep and also wake during sleep because when I'm lying there still with my eyes open, Mm. that device is generally capturing that as sleep. The motionless wake is the toughest thing for them right now. But I do see a future where like an EEG electrode can be Bluetooth paired to your device and that will kind of advance them further. But for the listeners at home right now, as Jonathan pointed out, these things should help you remain accountable. But there are some people who experience negative effects from tracking. It's called orthosomnia, where we become too obsessed with the output from our device. And there's a really, really awesome study that came out where participants received feedback post-awakening before they and they the um, rated their sleep subjectively before they received the feedback and also afterwards. And some were given the feedback that your sleep was really poor and some was given the feedback that your sleep was really good in a similar fashion that you would see on, an, on a device output, regardless of the actual sleep quality that they observed when in polysomnography. And what they found is that this information can modify someone's perception of their actual sleep or someone who got really good sleep and reported that they were refreshed upon awakening, a key thing that Jonathan focuses on. Are you refreshed? Do you feel refreshed? Not does your device tell you're refreshed, but are you feeling refreshed? Those individuals, despite achieving really good sleep and reporting that, once they received the negative feedback that was sham, fake, they changed their response. And so they actively then thought that they got poor sleep and were sleepier. So we have to be mindful that these things are still really prone to error, And they should not dictate how you feel. So if that's you out there, where you're susceptible to that, perhaps tracking is not the best strategy. And that's the kind of delicate process here is how to best utilize these as an ally rather than an enemy. And I completely agree with this. It's it's always the same discussion I have in clinic. It's whenever I see them coming in with their ring or their watch, their tracker, I don't all immediately jump on it, but it, it is in the first 10 minutes. And why, why did you track your sleep? Why do you need to track your sleep? Do you weigh yourself every day? And so on and so forth. And ultimately, does this help you? Does this increase your quality of life? Because let's not kid ourselves. Sleep is all about increasing your quality of life. So if every day you're looking at your device and I'm having crappy sleep and I don't, I don't understand why and so on and so forth, you're just increasing hyperarousal. Not because you're anticipating the next night. So hopefully tonight I'll have a good night. So if you're only hopeful of having a good night, you're opening the door to while well, you don't control anything, which is not entirely true. Partially true, but not entirely true. You have influence on how you will sleep on a nightly basis. That doesn't erase the fact that a poor night here and there is completely normal. But that's the the challenge of clinician and this tracker to get aligned. It's to make um, to uh, make or normalize that suboptimal night, you'll have them. Can we do something about it? Absolutely not. The idea is to reduce their frequency and their acuteness, meaning that when you have a poor night, it's because you took 45 minutes to fall asleep or you had one more awakening than usual, not you went sleepless the entire night. So with this tracker, as Jesse mentioned, that study is phenomenal in a sense that the feedback you will receive, whether or not it's true, will impact how you perceive your daytime energy. And that's why I focus a lot on 
how do you feel? You're the best judge here. I see you every two weeks for a couple of months, but you see yourself in the mirror every single day. You know yourself better than I do. So how do you feel this morning? That simple question will go miles with, with patient and athlete. And they know how they feel. So now when they have that awareness that I talked earlier, then the tracker becomes useful. So now we keep you accountable. We know your phase. We know how much you typically need and so on and so forth. And whenever you are outside of your window, is the tracker telling you the right thing? Yes. See, accountability. You knew what was coming. So now you understand why you're a little bit more tired the next day and you don't catastrophize it. Well, it's normal. I was too bit later, earlier, I had one drink, whatever you did. But as long as you do understand what you're getting from the device and you are a good sleeper to begin with, I'm entirely okay with them. And I would say that between three to five years from now, they will be golden standard. As Jesse mentioned, they are gathering so much data on a daily basis, regardless of the name of the company. They're getting much more data than any PSG out there. They will have the algorithm by uh, gender, group age, type of physical activity, you can name it all. And they will be able to be probably surpass the PSG in a couple of years from now. Wow, oh, it's 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 it. I really like what you've uh, emphasized there about sort of feeling interception and that kind of stuff because we we've touched on that so many times across so many different domains, and it's just you know coming up more and more. So just to kind of finish off, are there and and it, and it ties in with your point, Jonathan, you just made about we can influence sleep. Um, what what would be you know one or two main things that you would both advise that we can do? to influence our sleep? The first one, uh, and I'll take only this one, and I'll let Jesse after that uh, speak, it's the relaxation. We throw that word to everything, to everyone. And often with relaxation comes the word meditation. And I'll speak for myself, I can't do meditation. It doesn't mean it's a poor tool, it means it's a poor tool for me. Relaxation to me, again, it's know what you like. During my evening, I don't focus on relaxation. I focus on doing activities and hobbies I enjoy. If you are figuring out what you love to do on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday evening, you have figured out sleep and happiness. You don't wait for the weekend to actually enjoy yourself. You have this. And if you are engaging in an activity that you enjoy and like, you are relaxed. If you're engaging in activity that are not fun and that are meant for productivity, or if I do this, then I'll get a good night of sleep, then there's a burden attached to this. So you're not truly enjoying. So when you're enjoying, you're relaxing. And if you're doing this on a routinely basis, you want to have to actually purposely think about, okay, I need to do this type of activity at that time to sleep at 10. Too much pressure. Just enjoy. And, and whatever that may be, is that by reading, music, crafting, drawing, uh, stretch, anything is relaxation in my book. Please do not tell me that you will read a boring book to put yourself to sleep. Why do you bore yourself on purpose? I mean, that is the complete opposite of relaxation to me and higher quality of life. So to summarize, 
relaxation is often too narrow down to I need to listen to the Calm app, to the Headspace, to do some meditation. Sure, it may work with, with a portion of the population, and I won't dispute that mindfulness can be also a good one. I'm too hyper to do that, and I don't have a great ability to stay still for more than 15 minutes. So this is not the way to go for me. This is not the right tool to put in my toolbox. So to me, the relaxation may be because of how I am. I expanded the actual definition or con conceptualization of it. Engage in activities and hobbies you enjoy, and you will be relaxed. You'll be happy with your entire day and it will, you will close the door on it and then go to sleep smoothly. Brilliant, Jonathan. And I will say, perhaps this is why you should be practicing meditation or mindfulness so that you can sit still for more than 15 minutes. Uh, just kidding. The, the key theme there of re practicing relaxation is essential. And, and we put too much emphasis on relaxation within the hour preceding your targeted bedtime, right? Relaxation should be something that we practice across our entire day. Instead of just go, 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 and then land. We should have moments of relaxation, purposeful relaxation throughout our day. And Jonathan's right. Find the technique that works for you. Some people, when they focus on their breath, it causes stress and anxiety. Is that what we want at preceding bedtime? Is that relaxation? Doesn't seem so to me. So his emphasis on relaxation is, is paramount. Mine's going to be a little bit different. And you already said the big word here, Jason, and that is influence. I think a lot of times we approach sleep with intention to control. And the reality is a good night's sleep begins when you wake up in the morning, meaning that there's a lot of things we can do across our day to positively influence sleep. But we can never assure that we're going to have a perfect night of sleep. And the more attention and effort we place on trying to make that happen rather than invite in the possibility by checking as many boxes as we can, but recognizing we're not perfect and we're not going to check every box, the greater likelihood that we're going to have good sleep ability and quality. And so I kind of use this analogy a lot when working with, with um, clients and that is, you know, if you're sitting in a calm environment, say like in your kitchen, you got a windowsill open, it's very tranquil. You know, a dove may come and sit on that windowsill because the environment has invited that dove, right? But as soon as I turn my attention to that dove, it's likely going to fly away. And sleep's kind of the same thing here where we want to create a space where sleep can come based on all of our actions and desires across the day but not put too much pressure or attention on sleep itself. Because it is a natural behavior, because it is essential to biology, it will happen. And Jonathan's right. There's no perfect relaxation technique. And that sometimes is a problem that fits into this control thing. I have to do what they say needs to be done using calm headspace. And if I'm not listening to a, a I don't know, a meditative visualization podcast, then I'm doing something wrong. Those negative feelings, that pressure, that's the wrong. And so it's granting ourselves permission to not be perfect. It's acceptance that poor nights of sleep still fit within healthy sleep. And recognizing that we have a lot of things we can do to influence sleep, but we'll never be able to control it. I like that. Just relax. It'll come. Don't push it. Don't force it. Um, we always end up with... Uh, 
some fun questions. Um, and uh, the first one is, if you could only do two forms of exercise or sport, what would those two be? Jonathan. I'd be running and smashing arm run. That's what I would do. <laughs> what was the last one? Baseball. Uh, baseball. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Jesse? Uh, I love those answers, Jonathan. Uh, I would run uh, the the evidence out there. One, I just am a better person when I do it. Uh, but the evidence out there for longevity and the, the benefits it has and just getting connected with nature. I love trail running. Um, all those things are, are, are just such wonderful um, gifts from running. Um, at the same time, I think I would do golf uh, just because of uh, the longevity and sustainability component of it. Um, you know, I'm getting better these days about not letting it affect my my mental health as well. Um, but, you know, there's some four letter words that slip out occasionally on the golf course. Uh, but, yeah, I love being out in nature and uh, the unique travel that can often come with golf and things like that as well. The ability to evaluate yourself. And for me, it's a form of relaxation, being able to walk the course in a meditative state, especially in the afternoon as you start getting the shadows creeping in. I mean, just talking about it, I get warm fuzzies. So, uh, yeah, those two. But. I mean, Jason, you really, really constrained us there with just two forms of movement. I know, I know, but it has to be done. And then lastly, um, it's a bit like the sort of Groundhog Day, if you like. If there was one, there's something that you've experienced while doing sport or exercise that if you could relive over and over and over again, uh, what would that moment be? So I'll start with you this time, Jesse. You know, this one, that's a great question. Um, and it's actually going to be one of my biggest failures uh, and not one of my biz- biggest successes because um, I don't have many of those. But uh, from my biggest failures perspective, I was I was a pitcher in high school and I ended up giving nine runs up in the first inning without getting a single batter out. Um, and it was one of the most embarrassing moments in my life, truthfully. Um, and at that age, I was very fragile and it really, really negatively influenced me and shook my confidence forever, more or less, when it came to that sport. And the reason you're, you're probably sitting there like, why would you want to relive that over and over and over again? Because the more I relive that scenario, the more I'm less afraid of failure. I'll get desensitized to failure. And so I think if I can understand that I didn't die, nobody was hurt, I was still able to get up the next day and work on being better, which are things I did not know at that age. I think reliving that would help me understand those themes and turn me into a better athlete in the future. Wow. You've topped that, Jonathan. Uh, yeah, well, I'll go on the complete opposite. So to me, it would be when I did qualify for the World uh, Championship, World Youth Championship in track and field, that moment of uh, euphoria. Uh, and on that moment, you don't realize what just happened. You know you're going to the World Championship. But it's just a couple of years after that you do realize that this has crystallized into a memory. So whenever you have a big event in your life, you don't realize how much this will impact you. You only realize it years and years after. And when I'm looking at my souvenir and memories, this one is always at the top of my list because in that moment, I remember my coach running towards me. You did it. We have the time. You're going to Morocco. You're going to the World Championship and so on and so forth. And it's just a good good thing to just enjoy these moments. This is a big one, but there is also very uh, day-to-day uh, moment that will create memories. 
And this to me is just speak to enjoy the life to the fullest. And after the fact, you will realize which one were the biggest one and you will have your life lesson from them, negative or not. As Jesse mentioned, it's not always, even if it's sour at first, you may transform that into a very tasty juice later in life. And to me, well, I just created a memory on this years and years later after the fact. So now to me would be the when I did qualify for the World Youth Championship. Wow, some great ones, some great ones. Um, thank you, gents, for, for, for coming on. It, um, I mean, as a massive topic, uh, I think um, what you've done is is incredible to kind of explain a whole bunch of stuff. Hopefully some useful tips for people as well. And uh, I shall be going out and trying to get those orange glasses that uh, Jonathan uh, flashed up earlier um, from all good retailers, no doubt. Thank you for coming on, guys. Uh, true right, pleasure, Jason. Thank you for having us. All right, have a great day, everyone. Take care.